Welcome to the CRISPR revolution. This is CRISPR Cuts, a podcast dedicated to the world of genome engineering. Take a break and join us as we guide conversations with an expert CRISPR cast about this cutting edge science. Welcome to CRISPR Cuts. Our guest today is Dina Simkin, Research Assistant Professor of Neurology at Northwestern University. Dina focuses on understanding how genetic mutations in ion channels lead to cellular and network dysfunction, and she'll be talking more about her work today. I also have with me my co-host, Peter Deng, who is my marketing colleague at Synthego. Peter, since this is your first time on CRISPR Cuts, can you give us a short intro? Sure. I'm really excited to be on CRISPR Cuts. My name is Peter. I'm a product marketing manager here at Synthego. During my PhD, I was heavily involved with neuroscience, so it's very close to my heart. I studied quite a bit of neurodevelopmental and neurodegenerative disorders during my PhD, particularly with some epileptic encephalopathy. So this is going to be a really fun interview. Thanks for having me on here. Absolutely. So yeah, let's get right into it. Dina, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, personal journey and professional journey? Oh, hi. Yeah. So, well, my training is in ion channel physiology and biophysics. So in my PhD, I began uh, my research career studying mutations in ion channels and how they affect their single channel conductance and properties and function. And then uh, I moved into more complex systems to try to understand how these mutations could impact the function of excitable cells like skeletal muscle and then neurons using mouse models and uh, rat model systems. And then about eight years ago, uh, I took the leap into using human stem cell models to study the roles of these ion channels in the context of human diseases. That's where we're at now. I see. That's, that's amazing. Did you always know you wanted to be a scientist or how did you end up getting into science? I think so. I think, well, I guess my family, they're all very science-y. My mom is a neurologist. My father is a physicist. So I figured, you know, why not neuroscience kind of in the middle? Um, But I also, growing up, I guess I did a lot of painting. So actually my family thought I was going to be an artist instead. (laughs) But yeah, it turned out to be into science. took one class in undergrad called uh, The Biochemistry of Youthful Exuberance. And after that, I was like, okay, this is it. (laughs) Nice. I was going to ask you about, you know, one of your hobbies. And I think you just mentioned it. You like painting. So are are you still able to do that on the side with your scientific research? So I haven't done it in maybe a year or so now. But uh, usually, you know, I, I try to do some... You know, it's a, it's a good way to blow off steam and something besides doing research, which is very you know, kind of, well, I guess it's different than research, but it's all about creativity. So I think science is very much, you know, you have to have that creativity. So it makes sense. Do you find like there's a lot of translation between painting a, you know, beautiful image, such as during like a wine night or something and generating some really nice ICC imagery as well? Yeah, I mean... So actually, lately, my paintings have been very um, kind of like ICC images. So, yeah, it's actually pretty cool. So it's, uh, you know, it's telling a story, right? And so is the science. Do you have any ICC images framed in your house? I think I used to, but I don't anymore. We have some around the lab, actually. So some of the ones like from our multi-electrode arrays and some of the ones from patching cells where you can see the electrode coming to the cell. 
pretty cool looking. Oh man, that does sound really, really cool. Yeah. Changing gears, I guess, well, what really drew you into this field? I know that you said neuroscience was sort of this intersection between things that your your family was doing and you you got involved with this class that really drew you into it, but really what got you into the research that you're studying right now? So my focus has always been in ion channels and particularly potassium channels because they're so they're super interesting proteins and every single cell has them and you know requires them for like regulating pH, cell volume and then you know action potentials of like an inexcitable cell. So I think for me although sodium channels are very interesting and they're you know required for action potentials potassium channels are modulated by all kinds of things and so there's a lot to go with and it's also like instant gratification when you're patching onto a, a cell and you're looking at this current you can you know instead of waiting 2 days with antibodies for ICC you can see whatever is happening right away you can see them opening up and closing opening up and closing and all their different properties. So I think like that's what drew me in and it's, that's why I've stayed in the field. Yeah, it, and it's not, I guess it's not a particular disease I'm interested in. I'm just interested in how these channels, what their role is in cells, what they, if they're modulated by mutations or how they're expressed and what that causes, what kind of dysfunction or function does that cause in the cell and how the cell regulates it. Oh, that's that's so interesting. So I know you're you're saying that you're not necessarily driven by disease specific focus, but you, you mentioned genes. So are there sort of core genes that you're really interested in studying that are related to your your field? So you mean bes- besides like ion channel genes? Just uh, in general, uh, they could be genes that are related to ion channels. The more we look into these ion channels, we you know in cells, we find that like calcium. It's also very interesting and regulates everything. And so how these there's calcium binding proteins that can uh, regulate the function of ion channels. So that's really interesting. But I mean, I think for the most, it seems that human diseases like with there's mutations in pretty much all of these ion channel genes. So like there's plenty of places to go. So before I was studying skeletal muscle diseases and with the different potassium channels and now we're jumping to. Uh, neuronal diseases, so like epilepsy, which has another set of channels that there's human mutations. So, yeah. Just to take a step back for, you know, some of our listeners who may not be as well versed in neuroscience, can you explain a little bit about, say, any disease like epilepsy? Let's take that as an example. How, what the research so far has been and how the ion channels are kind of directly related, what kind of symptoms manifest in terms of people who are suffering from these diseases, because that would just set a background for, you know, why why this, this type of research is really important. So I think for the most part, I mean, how people understand epilepsy is whether or not neurons are excitable or not excitable, right? So hyperactivity is associated with epilepsy. but you know, and ion channels have, they regulate that directly. So not like other proteins in the cells, they actually are the ones that pass the current that make the cells fire. So yeah, in terms of symptoms of patients, so like you can record on EEGs, you know, with patients and you can see during a seizure, you have this, like these hyperactive spikes in the EEG and then like a periods of no activity. And so it's like these waves of activity, I guess that is what, how people characterize a seizure. 
I see. Based on what you were saying before, it's not necessarily, or your focus is not necessarily one specific disease oriented, but at the current moment, what type of projects are you working on in your lab? So when you're looking at these different ion channel genes, which are the specific diseases that are currently being studied or what what linkages are currently being studied in your lab right now? Right now, my focus is on casein Q2 related epilepsy. So we have a lot of patients that come into the Lurie Children's Hospital and, you know, we are able to get them to consent to provide their, you know, blood samples so we can make stem cells from them. And I think this is one of those pluses that, you know, I get to be able to work with patient cells rather than just, you know, with animal models where we can look at actual human uh, mechanisms. So our focus is really to, to figure out how KCQ2 mutations affect the neurons that we differentiate from the stem cells that we make from these patients. But there's other projects uh, in the lab where also there's other people in the lab who are working on other potassium channels. And we, we did do some work on sodium channels. But my, my interest was more in potassium channels because they're fascinating. They don't just open and close. They can be modulated in so, di- so many different ways. So, and they're regulated like homeostatically within the cells as well. So that's also another major interest. Well, that's really interesting. For in, in the context of KCNQ2, when there are mutations in this particular genes, what what is sort of the functional manifestation of that? Uh, either like you know, you can go into what's happening at the molecular level or what's happening within the the patients themselves. Yeah. So actually, there's very interesting clinical phenotypes with these. So there's some missense mutations that cause a like a dominant negative loss of function of the channel. And then there's mutations that are like truncation mutations that will basically make it uh, haploinsufficient. And then there's also very rarely there's gain of function mutations, which makes the channel function more. And the clinical phenotypes seem to be different for all these types of mutations. So, so far, we've pretty much like mainly focused on the um, dominant negative loss of function mutations. And, you know, we find very specific cellular phenotypes with these where like in early on, as we differentiate neurons, as they mature. So early on, they have phenotypes that are like related to the loss of function of this KCQ2 channel. But as they mature, there's some sort of compensatory mechanism that allows them to express other potassium channels to compensate for the loss of those. These dominant negative loss function mutations are associated with developmental and and epileptic encephalopathy while the haploinsufficient ones are associated with like a benign self-limiting epilepsy. It's all like neonatal epilepsy. While the gain-of-function mutations are associated with developmental encephalopathy without like neonatal seizures. Or I mean, they have seizures maybe later on, but not at the same time point as the others, which is super interesting. Okay, so there's like these different desynchronies. Are there specific neuronal subtypes that these are affecting? Or is this more of like a pan-neuronal impact? Well, casing 2 is expressed pretty much in most cells in the brain. So like we're looking at excitatory neurons right now, and then we're going to shift to inhibitory neurons as well. And then hopefully at some point organoids. But yeah, I mean, so they're expressed in glial cells. They're expressed in stem cells even. So yeah, this is, you know, you can study them in pretty much any cell. It makes them interesting. So some of these patients actually have like other comorbidities like uh, movement, 
disorders and um, they also have gastro issues. So, yeah, I mean, it can be studied pretty much globally. Nina, you, you mentioned a lot of these mutations. When, when you need to study them, obviously, tools like CRISPR are now very handy. Can you talk a little bit about how you use CRISPR in your research and also maybe give us some insight into the pre-CRISPR days, how it was, how the field was back then and how CRISPR has kind of changed the field? So unlike animal models, you know, where animals are pretty much inbred and have very little genetic heterogeneity, humans have a great deal of genetic heterogeneity. So this can affect like the cellular phenotypes that we find in ways that we can't even predict. So it makes it very difficult to relate any given cellular phenotype to a specific disease. And so unless you use a very large number of subjects, which means like large number of stem cell lines from different patients or different subjects, healthy controls and patient lines, you can't really predict which phenotype is really specific for the disease rather than just like variability between controls. Yeah. So being able to use CRISPR kind of eliminates that. So because we can study having and not having the mutation within the context of the same genetic background. So with we can ask the question of you know, how that specific mutation affects the function of these differentiated cells. So the phenotype can be directly related to having or not having the mutations. How many years has it been that, you know, your lab has adopted CRISPR and is it kind of easy now or does it come with its own challenges? Well, so the Kiskinis lab uh, was established about eight, eight and a half years ago when uh, Evangelos moved to uh, Northwestern from Harvard. And yeah, so since then we've been, you know, using CRISPR to make these lines because I think that, you know, we have a, we're studying a monogenic, a highly penetrant disorder. And we can ask those, those questions, like what that specific mutation is doing. Like we know the genetic cause, unlike in some disorders, like there's a lot of like neurodevelopmental disorders where either it's like a, a polygenic that are polygenic or the, there's just unknown genetic cause. We have a cause. So it makes it easier to ask this, you know, these questions and try to figure out how these cells function with having these mutations in the context of the patient genetic background, which is super important. Yeah, and I think you're really touching on a critical point with just the disease field in general about having uh, patient-donated cells. So regarding the use of patient-derived iPSCs, like what is the importance of these models for your research? What were the models before and how are you able to use these models now? I don't know. I think we were actually the first to publish on KCQ2 mutations in stem cell lines. So I know there, I mean, there's, there's been plenty of like uh, mouse models, but especially like early development is very different in mice than humans. And, you know, so I think that it's important to actually understand the human developmental process in these, in the neurons that we differentiate from these stem cells. Yeah. So how it was before, I'm not sure how it was before (laughs) since before, I mean, I think that one of the, before having access to humans uh, with these disorders, with these mutations, I think the next thing would be to, you know, insert a mutation into a healthy control line. The problem is that healthy control lines are just so variable in terms of genetic background. It makes it really hard to figure out whether it's necessary or sufficient, like where the mutation is necessary or sufficient. And so that's, you know, I think you have to do both to have a patient line where you insert, where you correct the mutation and then to have a, some sort of 
hopefully, and I think it'd be better to have like a related control with a similar genetic background where you insert the mutation. No, I think that that's a very salient point, especially in regards to like the level of heterogeneity that you're seeing across different cell models. I guess you're touching on something that I would like to ask you about. It's like the use of isogenic controls mm-hmm. where you mentioned before having patient cells or rather having healthy cells, you know, they didn't go through the same sort of conditioning that a patient derived cell may have gone through. So what has been the importance of generating isogenic controls within your field of epilepsy? And are there really a sufficient number of these models that are available off of you know, repositories, or has it really been the onus has been on the researchers to generate them themselves? So I think that, you know, in the past, it's been, you know, on the researchers to generate them themselves. And that's where we started off. But I think nowadays, there's a lot of NIH sponsored projects that are making these kind of different mutations in, in the same cell line. So there was a big project where they they characterized genetically a lot of different healthy control lines that have been used. And they found that in some of them, you know, there are some mutations that are associated with disease, even though the patient that it came from or the subject that it came from, it was entirely healthy as, as they, you know, from what they know of. And so that was another trick is to figure out how, which cell line to use as the, you know, you know, healthy control that of healthy controls, <laughs> because there is so much variability. And everybody has some mutations in them, right? So, yeah, I mean, I think that's just been the difficulty is figuring that out. But when you're looking at patient lines, we already know, okay, well, this patient has been diagnosed with this. They have this disease and we have, they've already been clinically tested to, you know, whatever gene panel or like whole genome or exome sequencing that's been done with them. So we have this information, we have the clinical information, and then we now we have cells from them that we can differentiate into whichever lineage we want. That's so cool. In in the context of KCNQ2, you had mentioned previously that there are missense mutations and truncations. I guess in total, based off the literature, how many different mutations have been characterized for KCNQ2 in relation to these uh, epilepsies? So like on ClinVar, there's, I can't remember how many exactly, like, oh, like 600 or so different mutations have been identified in patients. But in terms of stem cell lines, I think we are the only ones that have published on stem cell lines with, you know, specific mutations. I think we've published on five of them and we haven't. So one of our papers is like a full characterization of one of the patient lines and the arsogenic control. And, um, and then we have another paper where we just do the quality, where we just show how we do quality controls for these, for these, uh, crispered lines. And then that's for other ones. But yeah, I don't think so far there hasn't been any papers using stem cell uh, models with other KCP2 mutations. So it helps to be a first, I guess. <laughs> it certainly does. It certainly does. And it, it sounds like, um, there aren't currently initiatives that are really emphasizing the need to have a central repository where you can model all these different mutations across a single cell line. Or Mm -hmm. at least it doesn't sound like there is. Yeah. I mean, first of all, it's a, it's pretty difficult to do. Um, It takes a lot of, uh, you know, well, first of all, to work with stem cells in general, it takes a lot of uh, money and in terms of supplies and things like that. And then to have CRISPR, that's another time suck. And (laughs) 
yeah, it's a huge expense. So I think that, you know, right now, I think the focus of NIH is to is to look at these neurodegenerative diseases and look at like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's and their, their or ALS or something like that. They, they're inserting these mutations into one healthy control. But this is one gene with all these different mutations. And so far, the, the focus has been trying to make, you know, express these channels in hydraulicous expression systems and, and figure out whether the mutation is causing the channel to have a loss of function, gain of function, or, you know, what it's doing, you know, whether it's pathogenic, you know, when they find these mutations in patients. And so that has been actually one of our efforts, um, uh, you know, on the side um, with that with Al George's lab at Northwestern. So to try to characterize these hundreds of mutations that are being identified in patients. That sounds like a truly monumentous task. And I guess as a follow-up to that question would be outside of studying all these different mutations, um, what are the unmet challenges within the field? And really, how do you think your research as well as other researchers are addressing them? So I think there's a lot of skepticism about like you know, looking at neurons derived from stem cells because it's not, uh, or like in culture in general, because it's not like a network system. So I think that's a lot of big criticism that we typically get, but, um, you know, there's some things that are, you know, worth studying, like looking at the intrinsic properties of, let's say, a neuron that are important to understand then how the network, you know, could function um, within a you know, human brain. Since we can't have access to that, but you know, the other the challenge though, you know, to convince that this is like a legitimate uh, cell culture model and um, is to have uh, the proper controls so that you know for sure that you're studying, you know, the the mutation that you're studying because uh, you know over multiple passages or with CRISPR there could be other aberrations in the genome. Of these cells, and then you know you can subclone it out somehow, um, and then what you're studying is something completely unrelated to your mutation, and the phenotype you discover is not really you know what you want to look for or what is relevant, I guess. So I think that's a major challenge: is doing the proper quality controls and consistently and being consistent. So there isn't really, I mean, I think there's been some efforts to have like a best practices of like stem cell models. Um, but I think that like a lot of labs that are just just getting into it, you know, don't really without the you know proper training, I guess, and knowledge of all of the problems that you can have, uh, you know, may discover things that are not relevant to their diseases, and that's you know important to try to avoid those things. That that makes so much sense, Dina, and it, it's been so great to hear about you know, your work and even all the details and technical challenges around it. Zooming out, big picture question that I had was, uh, now that we have CRISPR, now that there is a lot of awareness about how to generate these models with the right controls and everything, where do you see the field, say, five years from now? What what is, what are we, um, or what are you largely excited about? Um, in terms of our projects? Uh, in terms of your projects or even broadly the neuroscience field in general, uh, given all this current progress, where, where is it headed? So maybe you can comment on both. What are you excited about for yourself? And then also generally where you see the field in five years? Right. So, I mean, 
for us, we found a very interesting phenotype in our in our you know casein key tube patient lines, and which is you know as I mentioned that earlier on we have a phenotype that's consistent with the loss of function of KCP2, but later you have this homeostatic maladaptive plasticity that happens and changes that over time that are not related like directly to the loss of function of KCP2, which is super interesting to try to, our, so our next goal is to try to figure out what those mechanisms are and how cells will basically maintain or compensate for, you know, the loss of these genetic or these genetic mutations. And yeah, I think this is going to be really important in terms of like epilepsy and ion channel disorders. I think a lot of people are finding that phenotypes, if you look at them, if you try to assess a phenotype at one time point, it may be very different than from a different time point. So this is a, a huge take home message from our work is that, you know, unless you're going to look at a time course of phenotypes, whether functional or ICC or things like that, you're not going to catch these changes. And you can attribute a phenotype that's not really related to the actual, the initial trigger of it. So yeah, so we want to be able to, when we're looking at neurodevelopmental diseases, it's, I think it's important to like follow the maturation process of these neurons and see what, how they change over time because of the mutations. Yeah, so I think that's that's going to be a major thing that's going to come out in the next five years in the field and in our own work is to look at this homeostatic plasticity or compensation. Got it. Thank you so much for you know walking us through this entire journey of how you think about a project to how it's actually executed and yeah, just projecting what where the field might be in the next few years. We always like to end with a fun question on the podcast. So. What is your favorite sci-fi movie, if you had to pick one? Ooh, uh, let me think. The Martian. Oh, I, I know, love that movie. It's so, like, I think my favorite line is, I'm going to have to science the shit out of this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah, that's what we do. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, Dina. This has been such an informative episode. Thanks so much for having me. This was really, really fun. Thanks for listening to CRISPR Cuts. I invite you to check out the Synthigo blog, The Bench, for more great CRISPR content. Please send us any feedback you have by contacting us on Twitter. And if you want to join in as a guest on our podcast, email us at crispercuts at synthigo.com. CRISPR Cuts is a scientific podcast by Synthigo, produced by Kevin, Minu, and me, Bobby. Additional production by Resonate Recordings, our cover art is by Jeff Merrick. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.